Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Rumor Flies. I'm Ryan. Hello. I'm Josh. And I'm Greg. Say it one more time. That was a little bit low. I'm Greg. Okay. So we got old Greg here. Okay. And we have another episode for you. Surprise, surprise. And for do. those that didn't look at the title, we're talking about animals today. We didn't do this last season, so I'm kind of uh, happy about this. W- were you just trying to sing Maroon 5? I, I almost I almost did it. Wait, how did I do that? Animals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. That's, that's where I thought you were going with it. Yeah, let's go with that. <clears throat> God, I hate... But animals on our original list. It was. So this is something that we had in mind, but... Uh, well, we're doing it, so it's still on our mind. And and to be fair, we we also had a listener write in about it as well. Yes. So, so. it is slash our own doing slash uh, listener suggestion. Hear that, listeners? You asked for it, and we already had it. We delivered. So stop asking. Actually, keep asking. We really yeah, want you keep, to. Keep, stop. keep asking, actually. Please okay. write us for lonely. I honestly don't think we have much to talk about beforehand, so are you ready to jump in, Josh? Let's do it. All right, you're first. Let's do it to it, Lars. Okay, so... <laughs> Buddy! <laughs> I love that movie. It's like our second heavyweights reference this season. Um, now, so this is going to be uh, a little throwback to another Disney media uh, topic real quick. Um, this has more to do with animals Just- than it does with Disney, so that's why it went here. But it should be mentioned that uh, Walt Disney had his uh, death hands wrapped all around it. Yeah, it, it just... <laughs> He went into rigor mortis. He didn't let go afterwards. He was actually still alive when this happened. But what I'm talking about is lemmings. Now, the the big thing with this is there was a, a famous documentary called White Wilderness. And this documentary came out in 1958. It was a nature documentary produced by Walt Disney. And it actually ended up winning the Oscar for best documentary feature. Really? Yeah, <laughs> in 1958, yeah. Well, how many other documentaries were out there at the time? Uh, I mean, that's a fair point. But the fact that such a controversial documentary, which we'll get into why it's controversial. So the most famous scene in this documentary uh, is these lemmings committing suicide by running off the side of a cliff. Now, there was a lot of um, backlash to this later on. But what the, the narrator suggests is that the lemmings were merely just trying to cross the river. And since it's so wide, they weren't able to make it. And so they drowned. That's how this was all portrayed. And we'll have a, a link to the, the documentary in the show notes. It might be a little bit. Uh, you got to be sensitive about it watching, you know? Yeah. I mean, that that is one thing we should probably mention is that, like, it does show nature being metal. Yes. <laughs> so, well, um, so that came out in 1958. And then in 1983, there was a Canadian broadcast corporation that found out that lemmings weren't actually jumping into the Arctic Ocean like the the documentary portrayed. Really? It was the Bow River in Canada. Well, and let's get into this. I mean, Greg, you've heard of lemmings jumping off of cliffs and stuff. like. There's even a video game based off of that where uh, you play lemmings. Like It's called lemmings. And they're like walking along a platform area. And you have to kind of like make certain lemmings build stuff or even potentially sacrifice themselves so the majority of lemmings can get to the other side of the level. And I thought it was really fun when I was playing on Mac in summer camp. Like they had this, that was like the only game on it when it was too hot outside and people were getting heat strokes. But you know, those little, um, Oh, so it's an older game. Yeah. It's, okay. it's much older. I think it might've actually run on DOS at some point. So, oh, wow. okay. But there's, it, there's even terms off of it. Uh, Greg told me this. he's the political guy here. <laughs> I mean, um, we were able to find like, there's a bunch of quotes using it, but basically it's kind of like, um, it's like saying sheeple. Um, it's the idea that, they need if to wake up. Yeah, you're. Fu- 
<laughs> this this political commentary brought to you by. So we uh, basically the idea that uh, if you're comparing people to lemmings or a group to lemmings, is the idea that they're following a group blindly or following someone blindly even to certain death or a certain doom. So um, it's usually used derogatorily towards people who aren't you know looking for their leaping. Yeah, and that's where this comes from is this documentary because they saw these lemmings just basically falling off a cliff. Um, but as we now know that this is bullshit. So uh, the other thing besides them not falling into the Arctic Ocean was that lemmings were not known to be from that region either. So they had to import them. And by import them, I mean buy them off Eskimo children. Oh, just, hey, they're called Inuits or what are they called? Now? I don't know. The, Inuit might be the term now, but yes, we are. We're, we've we're, been over we're this before. Our best. We, we we're still trying haven't, our best. We still have not figured out what the correct you know, nomenclature is. Listen, people that may be of that region that are listening to this, we do not mean to offend you, but at the same time, we have not made any steps to not offend you yet. So, <laughs> Yeah, so that, but that's where they got them from. Um, they, they bought them from, from little children's. And uh, they basically ended up creating all these artificial elements. Um, but the, the crazy thing is, is like, Lemmings don't do that. They don't just blindly fall off a cliff. They don't blindly. I mean, they, they do stick to a herd mentality, but they don't, you know, they're not going to just keep running off the side of a cliff like the video portrays. So the question becomes is that since they created all these artificial elements, you know, to say that it was the Arctic Ocean, blah, 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 blah. Where did that idea come from? And that was not something that I was able to find out. But the, the director of that documentary had to get that idea from somewhere that that was a naturally occurring, you know, thing in nature. Well, he was probably like, so what are we going to do with the lemmings? Oh, we can show them, you know, like moving and stuff. Is there anything really predating on them? Not really right now. We can't really get any video of that. Well, I guess we're going to have to make them kill themselves. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And it's also not known how much Walt Disney had his hand in this documentary as far as like what he set up or what he didn't set up. I mean... Uh, I mean, that's such a long time ago that there's not really any records to show that like he was pointing the finger being like, show those motherfuckers going off the side of a cliff. When did you say this documentary came out? 58. 58. So at this point, he was probably extremely busy trying to plan Disneyland. No, Disneyland opened. It was open at that point? Disneyland opened in 1955. Disney World opened in... 1971. Okay. And so, that's Magic Kingdom. Busy man. In and way. in the 60s, he was working on Haunted Mansion. You know, we'll, we'll just chalk it up to that. We'll give Disney a pass for this one. <laughs> well, th this was right around the time of the World's Fair. So that's what he was focusing on. Okay. And he uh, he was also, this is like towards where his health started to decline because he died in, I think, 65. You know, let's just call up Michael Eisner and ask him a few questions. <laughs> he probably has nothing to do lately. Hey, check that uh, that phone number in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, see if we can get him on the phone. Oh, yeah, we totally have his connect. <laughs> we got that. You know, Ryan, we've had some good luck on uh, LinkedIn recently. See what you, we can make happen. Oh, totally. <laughs> There's probably some lemming experts or a whole circle of groups of uh, lemming experts in there or former Walt Disney documentarians. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, there wasn't a whole lot of detail I went into about this other than like this is where the myth came from. You know, it came from that this this documentary, this nature documentary is where people say these lemmings would fall off a cliff. And, you know, you get the, the sheep mentality like or the lemming mentality, I guess is probably the better term. Just blindly follow. Yeah, you just blindly follow someone. So that's where it comes from. But they set up all these elements to basically portray the the um, what, what's the word I'm looking for to portray the I want to say novel uh, the. What's the narrative? Jesus, I knew it was the N-word. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to have to bleep that. <laughs> that. That didn't come out right. Yeah, so anyway, they basically... 
<laughs> they basically set up this own narrative to, and it won, it won a fucking Oscar, and it was all bullshit. Like the point of being a documentary is a real thing, and they won an Oscar for it. Yeah, they should give it to other movies that really have integrity or not aiming to get an Oscar, like you know, Slumdog Millionaire or something like that. Well, but it's but that's not a documentary. That's my whole thing. It is, isn't. No. Oh. You want to double check that one right there? Anyway, so that's all my uh, my my Lemmings gossip. I won't bore you with it anymore. I, I thought it was interesting. So my question is, obviously the implication here is that Disney coerced these, not Walt Disney himself, but the, the Walt Disney Corporation, the, the production crew. They coerced the Lemmings to jump off this cliff, cliff by one means or another. Did you see anything about possibly what was behind the frame or like just to the left of it that was making them run off like that? Well, one of the things, I mean, there was, I couldn't find an actual like confirmation of like how they managed to do it. I just know they created these, like I said, these artificial elements to get what they wanted. But one of the things that, that I, I heard um, was they were taking a car and basically chasing the Lemmings. And they basically trapped them, and it was either get run over or jump off a cliff, and they chose the latter. That was like an action movie right there. Yeah. I mean, Aim you, for the bushes? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So, <laughs> there goes my hero. Oh, that was totally in pitch. Yeah, there we go. I'm glad that Greg convinced, like, you know, he confirmed that. Yeah. So, that, <laughs> that one's uh, pretty interesting for the most part. Uh, there was something else I wanted to mention uh, revolving around those. I guess not. So I guess we'll move <laughs> on. <laughs> All right. So I guess that's everything for you. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's what it was. This is a little tangent there. When it comes to documentaries of things that actually did happen but were suppressed was, I don't want to get the name, Greg. This is your fact checker thing. There was an Antarctic explorer in the 20s that did a lot of research. Oh, uh, uh, Yes. That documentary? Possibly. No, he just had a bunch of studies that were withheld from the public because he found out the devastating truth about penguins that they not only practiced. Oh, I remember this. They yeah. not only practiced uh, homosexual tendencies, but they also practiced uh, necrophilia. Mm -hmm. And penguins were like total fucking party animals, apparently. But the people in the 1920s weren't ready to know that about penguins. So. They, they weren't ready for penguins to be so YOLO. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Okay, so I guess moving on to the next topic, we're going to be talking about one that has been shown just about everywhere in cartoons, mainly cartoons, but also I feel like people uh, say another phrase in reference to this, and that's ostriches burying their heads in the sand to defend themselves. Oh, another Disney scared. reference with their turkey legs. Oh, yeah, there we go. We're, we'll find a way to you know shoehorn Disney into everything we do from now on. I'm sure that our audience will love that. <laughs> So this uh, the podcast thing is just going to be called F Disney, but we're still trying to cope with the fact that we like it from yeah, now on. We're in denial. So the rumor is that ostriches, when they are scared or threatened, tend to bury their heads in the sand. And you've seen this in cartoons everywhere and like people saying, you know, they have their head in the sand. I've seen like tons of different references to this. And it's clearly in the media at this point. And I was trying to find the origin, figuring that like, you know, maybe this happened because of a cartoon. No, it goes way back, way back. There was this little Roman dude named Pliny the Elder. Mm. Love between, his beer. Yeah. Li <laughs> it's a little bit aged at this point. Considering he lived from 23 CE to 79 CE, roughly. 
in his book, The Natural History, book 10, chapter 1, which is a gold mine, by the way. I think we're actually going to get some more quotes from there because this guy is just as good as William Powell when it comes to actually sourcing things. It's just, you got to give him some credit because I feel like anybody passes by, he's like, hey, tell me a fact about an animal or some people that you saw. And he just wrote it down. This is all big fish stories, the entire thing. And it is hilarious. And this is probably one of his most mild quotes. And it's about ostriches. Speaking of ostrich mechanisms, defense mechanisms, actually, quote, they imagine when they, <laughs> they, <laughs> they imagine when they have their head and neck into a bush that the whole of their body is concealed. So it's more of like the baby syndrome where it's like, you know, I guess object, permanence, yeah, object right? permanence. Yeah. We're just like, so I can't see them. So they can't see me. Like they're completely concealed. Note that it said a bush. I think somewhere in the translation of this, though, it got translated to sand. And also it might be due to the fact that uh, probably people saw the ostriches pecking at like sand and pebbles and swallowing them to see if there was any food in there. Because don't get me wrong, ostriches are dumb, but they're not that dumb. Well, are they native to like strictly sand oriented, oriented like uh, agriculture like areas? As far as I know, yes. Greg, look up ostrich climates. Uh, we have ostriches here in Louisiana, but those are like farms. Right. I mean, we don't have any running around. Thank I mean, God. Those I know there's are, those like, are assholes. <laughs> I know there's like, uh, you know, domesticated ostriches, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I don't know. I don't know if this is correct. When I think of ostriches, I think of Australia. I think they're generally native to Africa. Yeah, it wouldn't be Australia. Nobody. But they're well. The thing is, your kind they're us. Uh, they're they fall into the Australis. Yeah, what's that? But, f- no, but oh. no, no, they're from Africa, though. Saying, but that it's part of their, uh, I don't know, it, was, it doesn't say if it's their genus, species, or whatever, but they fall under. It's I'm still right, Greg, it's fine. So, likely confused with just the pebbles and the sand, like, digging around in there, and that's pretty much where it started, and it just kind of rolled the ball for another good, you know, nearly 2,000 years up to today, where people still think that ostriches bury their heads in the sand. And really, thankfully... I think that is the only thing that survived Pliny's legacy when it came to believing things about that region or about that animal. Okay. So that's not true. You cannot, you'll never see an ostrich. There has never been a recording of them digging, like burying their heads in the sand. Also, the sand has to be loose enough for them to do that. Like just to straight up, just slam it right in there in a pinch in order to, you know, hide from their predator. Yeah. It's definitely mostly Africa, by the way, just looking at the map here. It's, it's, different parts of the continent but. Pliny has a lot to say about Africa well just oh, I... just kind of like real quick like during that era like era not era meh, during that era though I mean that was really common for Roman citizens like that were fighting uh to bury their heads in the sand as well so I wonder if there's some kind of connection there I think that's where that came from yeah and that that's what I, I was ultimately leading to was by the... common you meant it was commonly believed no I mean they did it I mean there's recorded evidence of them while they're fighting, like if they're losing, they just bury them, their heads in the sand. All right, die. we got somebody here just for that. You you want to challenge him? You want to challenge him? <clears throat> Penalty shots on the line right Googling. now. <laughs> <laughs> While he's Googling, we're going to go ahead and do a little quick Pliny fact. As uh, many fallacies he might have in his book, Pliny was a total badass. The way he died was when Mount Vesuvius erupted. Mm-hmm. He was the rescue crew pretty much, and he continuously went back to save his family to the point where there was a point of no return, and he died on a ship that got caught in the aftermath of it. Oh, and wow. he went out a hero. It was pretty awesome. He was uh, 
he was something else. I mean, he pops up all over history, like just in some way, shape, or form, whether he was alive or just some of his work and well, stuff like that. Granted, Pliny was very dedicated to knowledge and education and just the art of learning. However, he didn't exactly filter many things and just kind of left it all in there. I want to know the things that he decided not to put in there. So my first, my, this is really interesting. My first search is, um, uh, this is very cursory, but I'm seeing a lot about the Battle of uh, Cannae. I was just going to say and, that was my reference. And they, uh, but the thing is they would, bury their heads in the ground and suffocate themselves yeah. so they died. Yeah, that's they what they were hiding. They yeah, were they weren't hiding. Themselves. That's what I said. They, they knew they were going to lose. But no, but, but I thought you were saying, therefore, they were deliberately, from what I'm reading, they were deliberately trying to kill themselves. Okay. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, miss, I miss that part of it. Oh, no, no. That's, I guess I didn't make that clear. No. Um, Back they, then, fall in the sword was clearly a known term. I don't get why they didn't just go that route. That seems a, like a, a lot, lot of work better. to, you know, suffocate yourself. I mean, anyway, this is very cursory Google searches. We'll have to go a little further, but I'll post some of these on the uh, show notes anyway. Yeah. Unexpected. Learn more about Roman soldiers than we did about ostriches. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm done with that. Josh, you want to hop into the next one? Well, the last thing I do want to add to that is like, especially for that time frame, you know, during the Roman Empire, because he was so dedicated to knowledge and, and things like that, the Romans were great at keeping, you know, uh, uh, logs and facts and diaries and stuff like that and passing on, you know, uh, books and traditions like that. So that's why, you know, we're really lucky that we found, um, you know, some of his works is because they did such a good job of record keeping. Right. Uh, I mean, they were an advanced civilization for the time. So. Yeah. Okay, actually getting into the next subject. Josh, what you got? Uh, I'm going to talk about now uh, something that uh, I wasn't ever quite sure about. I never heard it before uh, until we started talking about doing this episode. That really surprised me that you never heard this. I never, Especially ever living this. down here. Yeah. Uh, and what we're talking about is that people can catch leprosy from contact with armadillos. Anybody that doesn't know what an armadillo is? It's an arm that has feet and legs. It's an armadillo. Okay. I was expecting the real explanation. I'll give you a C for it. I mean, I, I don't know how to explain an armadillo. It's an armored possum, pretty yeah. much. I mean, that that was what I was going to say. They're kind of cute if you're into, like, diseases and rodents and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I they, mean. They wind up on the bumpers of a lot of cars in Texas. Well, I guess I live under a rock, yeah, because I, I honestly never heard this before. Greg, have you heard this before? Um, I vaguely, my mom's from Texas. I vaguely remember hearing something about. I don't know if it was leprosy, but armadillos like carrying certain diseases and problems that like it's almost got like a rodent, um, uh, what's the, reputation? Maybe I took this home from Cajun country. Well, but, I know. Well, I, like, I, I might have heard that specifically. I just remember armadillos having this rodent reputation. Well, right. I mean, it's common. Like I've heard getting rabies from raccoons. Yes. I never heard leprosy from armadillos. So that was my whole thing. Um, but yeah, so this is a weird one. And before I can tell you it's true or not, you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to have to go through a series of events. And it's it's weird. I mean, ultimately, okay, I'll say yes, it's possible is what I'm going to say, but not in the way that you think. And so just let me explain. Now, armadillos... Just let me explain. Yeah. So armadillos are the only other animals besides humans that can host leprosy bacillus. Oh, how privileged of them. And Ryan, for us stupid people, us Uncle Rusty people, what is leprosy bacillus? So usually bacillococcus is a strain of bacteria. It is a wide variety. It's the little ball-shaped ones. There's uh, the rod-shaped ones, which I think is streptococcus. Then there's uh, bacillococcus, which is the ball-shaped ones. And a variety of diseases come from that type of bacteria. And it happens to, that leprosy is one of them. I actually didn't know that leprosy was a bacteria. I, well, the results of leprosy were from a bacteria. 
I thought it was like a virus or something like that based off of nothing, but I never thought about it. Yeah, so. I, I thought I actually had the same thought too. So I guess the easiest way to put it is that it is just a specific strand of leprosy, of the leprosy bacteria, okay? And to my knowledge, they haven't been able to prove that other animals can carry this specific strand of, of leprosy and pass it on like armadillos and people. Okay. So the New England Journal of Medicine published a study explaining all of this, and I will have that specific case study in the show notes. It's actually a really interesting read. Um, so ultimately, though, like, why would you ever get to armadillos are the ones that would give you leprosy? You know, like, why that specific animal? Right. And it seems th the best explanation they can give is that their body temperature and their genetic makeup is basically what makes them, it allows them to be carriers. They have around the same body temperature as us? Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I didn't know that either. I guess in defense of bacillus, there's also lactobacillus, which happens to be what helps people digest milk products, like a lactic, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Boob milk. Yeah, exactly. Well, it should be. It, it's a really weird thing if you think about it, why we drink milk. It's from cows, not humans. Yeah. And also, we're supposed to only drink it as babies, not as adults. Well, the leprosy pathogen is, is very fragile and like, it dies up very quickly with other animals. You know, that, that's because their genetic makeup and their body temperature doesn't allow them to, to, to host it like an armadillo does. And what's a pathogen? Just so we're clear. A uh, pathogen is... Because Greg asked, not me. A pathogen... Of course. I, I, I'm going to... I don't want to give the strict definition of it, but it is generally anything that is contagious and can be spread from one entity to another mm -hmm. being okay. like an animal. It could also be an airborne pathogen, something like that. Right. It just spread around and is able to cause an ailment. Possibly there are benign pathogens, but I don't think that falls into the definition of it. There's but, only nine? Shut up. <laughs> but the loosest term of it is it is any type of disease that can be spread. Thank you, Rolf. Well, scientists have a hard time studying the disease in a lab. It dies out too quickly. I didn't realize it was, it was, I mean, it really is that, that fragile. They can't have like a space heater that keeps it at like 98.8? .8? Uh, I guess not. But now before you start freaking out and thinking that leprosy is going to make a comeback. Oh, thank God. I'll, I'll put you to ease, Ryan. Don't worry. 95% of the population is generally unsusceptible to catching it. Really? It's, yeah. 95%. I didn't realize it was that high. Well, check your leprosy privilege, man. <laughs> and if you, but if you do catch it though, I mean, we basically do have a series of drugs that you can take. Yeah, there's always it. a cocktail for a lot of things these days, and I figure leprosy not being on the rise or in the news would be one of them. Well, you hear, you know, you read all the old stories about people having leprosy, and they basically just get cast off, and they go die in their own little... Yeah, leper colonies yeah, are a colony. legit thing. They're even mentioned in the Bible. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's... that's, that's Jesus got street cred for hanging out with lepers, so, <laughs> I mean... So, but here... So, th this is my favorite part about all of this, okay? My... You know, the, the basis of this was you can catch leprosy from armadillos. And now here's the big f you to all of this. Scientists believe that we humans were the ones to give the disease to the armadillos. Oh, okay. <laughs> About 500 years ago. So the only reason they even have it is because of us. I'm yeah. really trying to think, does it say how it can be communicated between humans and, and armadillos? I I'm, I'm assuming contact, just physical contact. Now, is it all the armadillos that can catch it or just a few different ones? Or So there's a specific uh, set of populations, and like of, of certain populations of armadillos that up to 20% of them have leprosy. So it's not all of them. So there is a specific type that are better at carrying it than other armadillos. Okay, Greg, I'm, I'm, we're making you work today.
Look up how many species of armadillo can actually roll up into a ball. While we're at that, Josh, continue. Anything else? Uh, yeah. The other thing is that don't feel too bad, though, for the armadillos because most of them don't live long enough to feel the effects of leprosy. Yeah, leprosy has a tendency to be able to lie dormant, from what I've understood. Up to 20 years. That is ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, shut up. Well, that just let it go. You you can catch it like as as a teenager and not and not actually so show signs of it until you know almost your forties. You know, see, so just to worry about the acne. So only um, the when threatened by a predator, tolipidus. I, I it's a scientific name. Show notes. Uh, species frequently roll up into a ball. Other armadillo species cannot roll up because they have too many plates. Man, other ones tend to jump straight in the air and. Consequently, often collide the undercarriage of fenders of passing vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> if your defensive mechanism is jumping. <laughs> but yeah, I, there's one species that can particularly roll into a ball. Just but. one. And you see in cartoons and stuff like armadillo is rolling up into a ball, but only one of them is able to do that. That's crazy. Wasn't there a superhero in a superhero movie that was an armadillo? Possibly. I cannot. It's not Mystery Men. I know that. I figured, but it was like a Mystery Men-esque type of film, I think. It wasn't The Incredibles? No, it wasn't The Incredibles. Don't shit on The Incredibles like that, Ryan. I'm not. I mean, you're the one that asked about it. Okay, so we're done with that one? Yes. We're done with that one? We are. Okay, so if I'm being robbed, next time just jump up into the air and then subsequently get hit by a car? Yep, that's exactly it. Got it. And you might have leprosy. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Next one, we're going to be talking about another ting from Africa, but also relevant to here in Louisiana. We are going to be talking about running from alligators and crocodiles. So this is going to make me sound a lot more backwards than I actually am. But I mean, I've gone on canoe trips and I've actually wrestled like a little baby alligator at that point, like when I was out there. And it's also terrifying. Have you ever jumped in a swamp, Josh? No, I have no desire to ever do that. It's terrible. It's one of the worst things ever. I was doing it for extra credit for my English teacher. It, It... that sounds wait, really hold, weird. Wait, yeah. hold on. How does this, how does this one yeah, relate to the let's, other? Let's walk through this story. It was a canoe trip for English 5 in my senior year, and it was Mr. <laughs> I doubt he listens to this, so I don't think I'm going to even You knew who he was, you know. But <laughs> we went on a canoe trip with him because I guess he really wanted to be like, you know, that inspirational teacher. So, but we were out on a dock eating lunch, and he was like, five points extra credit if you, get, if you jump in the swamp, like as a joke. And, like, four of us did it because we knew how badly he was going to, like, bomb us if we didn't do it. So he was a pretty hard grader. So I jumped in, and number one, extremely cold. Swamps are terribly cold, and this was in the summer. Secondly, did you know that there is tons of kelp in there that will make you have an anxiety attack or just, like, a heart attack once you jump in there because it feels like it's grabbing at your feet? Yeah. There is tons of vegetation at the bottom. It is terrifying. Yeah. To worsen it, as soon as it got back on the boat... Like, to start going again after lunch, I just saw this tail go under me. Like, you, you know, like, the, the terrible Godzilla movie, how you see it, like, going under that boat in the, in the show? It was like that. But it was an alligator. So, alligators are a little bit demonized. I guess that's the end of that story. But I, I jumped into a swamp for extra credit. And I, I got it. It was cool. The world is a better place for knowing that. Alligators get a bad rap because they are not half as aggressive as their uh, crocodile cousins. Alligators are more, in Steve Irwin's words, like frogs with teeth. Uh-huh. They're not very aggressive, and they won't really attack you unless provoked, or especially if you're going near one of their nests or they're young in general. They actually are kind of protective of that, as unlike most, you know, reptilians. Yeah, or most things in this world. Yeah. Yeah, but crocodiles are a little bit more on the aggressive side. Now they're very good hunters. They are ancient. They are pretty much dinosaurs that have survived up until today. 
Crocodiles? Crocodiles and alligators. They used to be a lot bigger. Like the Lake Placid ones were the normal size ones way, 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 way back before we were, you know, walking on two feet. It's comforting. Yeah, well, it's comforting that it's not like that anymore. There's only one alligator in Florida that looks like that. You saw that video? The Florida golf course oh, alligator? I did. Yes. That yes, thing I did. is giant. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, it didn't attack anybody, so that's cool. It's like their golf course mascot now. They have should have a putting course with it on there. It can just you can put it into its mouth. But anyway, so a lot of people say that if you are chased by a crocodile <laughs> or an alligator, you should run what? Hey Chubbs, you know that gator that got your arm? <laughs> I got his head. <laughs> That's all I can think of. Who? Oh, Jesus. Oh, sorry. Oh, So most people say that if you are being chased by a crocodile or an alligator. Run in zigzags. Yes. You're supposed to run in zigzags. Well, is this really worth it? It turns out that the top speed of alligators and crocodiles has been clocked at, at most, 11 miles per hour, or for our non-U.S. listeners, 18 kilometers per hour. Yeah, because the big myth is that if they're in a straight line, they move really, really fast. Yeah, and they have different ways of running. 11 is not slow, let's be real. That's that's actually a decent little speed. Yes, but... My thing... Has to happen. Yeah, my thing was that... It wasn't that I heard that they were fast. It was that they were long distance. That was what I heard is that like if you were to take a horse and run him in a straight line, an alligator would eventually catch up to him. Turns out I don't know who came up with that because it is the exact opposite. In the water, maybe. When they swim, they can swim roughly 20 miles an hour. Oh, shit. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Like that's, that's faster than Phelps right there. But uh, in general, alligators, if you're in the water, you're screwed. If they want you, they'll get you. Nice. But on land, unless you're near the water, they work by burst movement where they kind of do this whole trapping thing. Like you see like a gazelle in the water and then a crocodile just comes and grabs it by the neck and pulls it in. That's where it gets its moment. They are, they are good with their explosive burst energy and they're good at accelerating really fast. However, they do not have the stamina to keep running on land for very long. Hmm. They have several different ways of running too. There's different stances seen in different species. Mainly it's kind of like a shuffling on their belly when they need to like go fast enough where they don't even like get off the ground. But when they need to like cross to ponds or something like that, they'll get up on all fours and like suspend their belly over the ground and walk on all fours like a I guess a very short dog or something. And one thing to keep in mind about alligators, they're you know, they're cold blooded, so any cold blooded animal, uh any expenditure of energy is a big, big deal. Yeah, that's a very good point. I didn't even think about that one. Yeah, it's uh it's it's why like they they always I've, I've talked to people who had to watch tons of videos of trying to get gators getting the kill and it's just days and days of nothing. Mm-hmm. Like it's just boring. <laughs> well, granted, like we said, <laughs> In terms of short bursts, yes, if you're by the water, an alligator might be able to nab you if you aren't fast enough. But if you have one coming from coming at you from even, like, I don't know, a couple feet away, you can probably get away by running at full speed and then taking it to a jog afterwards. Because, believe it or not, humans are one of the best long-distance runners in the entire world. Only second to, like, horses, pretty much. There's a lot of theories about that's how we, like, developed our hunting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there is a virtue to being bipedal. We are very good long-distance runners. So... A general, somewhat healthy person can probably un- outrun both a crocodile and an alligator on land. Basically, so, if you see one, don't be tricky. <laughs> yeah. So, zigzag is one of those things where, yeah, it might make it harder for them, but it also might make it harder for you. So, go ahead and zigzag if you want to, but if you don't feel like it, don't. Just go run, you know? 
I really hope we don't get any listener mail about, you know, their friend getting killed by an alligator for not zigzagging. I followed your advice. (laughs) (laughs) He told me as he was running, it's okay. Rumor flies said I didn't have to zigzag. So... So, famous last words. Wait, the, speaking of famous last words, there was that dude in Florida that recently... I'm laughing oh, about this no. just because, like, he was extremely placid. I feel like they were on a tubing trip. and They may have been boating or tubing, but extremely drunk. <laughs> and he was about to jump into the water. And they were like, don't jump in there, the alligators. And his last words were, fuck the alligators. And then he got eaten? Yes, nice. exactly. He might have jumped right by a nest. So. Well, so let me ask you this then. If, if an alligator is chasing you on land, how long will it chase you? Do you have an idea? They wear out pretty fast. Like I said, there's the acceleration. But then once they get away from the water, they're opening themselves up to a lot of different external threats to themselves, okay. which is just either exhaustion or, like Greg said, energy expenditure. Right. The water is where they exceed. They don't want to take their time to chase something down on land when there might be plenty of other prey in the water where they excel much better. Okay. And like I said, they're ambush animals. Once yeah, once their act is up and once they've, you know, the prey has escaped, they don't go very far from actual from the actual water unless maybe there's a threat to the nest, like okay. I said. But in general, this myth said you can do it, but it's not going to hurt you if you don't. So All that's right. it for me. All right. Well, moving on, I'll cover my last topic of the night. And this is one that I'm sure everybody's heard or everybody's seen at some point. And there's the, the famous image, you know, you see people throwing rice at a wedding, okay? Um, and that's the most well-known part. But there's other people who say, don't throw rice at a wedding because a bird can get it and then they're going to explode because they can't digest it. Yeah, something, different variations, like their stomach but implodes, something stuff similar like that. to that. Yeah, exactly. Too much MSG, they get really tired and get headaches afterwards, really you know? bloated, sweaty palms. Yeah, uh, no, that that's, uh, first off, that, that's bullshit. Now, the origin of this comes from state legislator May Schmindel, Schmidl, Schmidl, uh, in Connecticut. Who Before in 19- you say anything, was he trying to defend... She? She? May? I don't know. I, I've never heard that name in the first place. May? Oh, yeah, actually, I have. That's right. Was this person trying... Was they, they speaking in a realm of legislature talking about a bill of some sort? Let me finish. Okay. <laughs> May Schmidl, who in 1985 introduced a bill Yay! called an act prohibiting the use of uncooked rice at nuptial affairs. Okay. That is the actual name of the bill. How specific? Yeah. So the bill would provide that no person shall... Uh, sorry. The bill would provide that, quote, no person shall provide, fling cast or hurl any uncooked rice at any time during the celebration of any marriage. But you can still launch it. (laughs) Okay. But actually, no, you can't because for anyone caught throwing rice or anything like that, there'd be a $50 fine. I had a rice apult ready. So the way this goes, this was proposed and then there was a lot of back and forth between her uh, ornithologists and oddly enough advice columnists who felt the need to jump in on this so basically what it was it was just a big pissing contest she introduces the bill <laughs> then ornithologists basically say no that's not true and then she says no it is and they're like nope we do this for a living and then advice columnists would say no you should throw rose petals instead because that won't hurt the birds 
And it just became a big pissing contest, basically. So why was this introduced in the first place? Like, what, that could not be the only reason why she brought that up because the, of birds. The biggest, it was a, a misconception that she wholeheartedly believed was true. Huh. So that's the first time it got in the mainstream, at least. That's the first time it was publicized. So it may have been an old wives' tale that eventually turned into... Right, but, that was, but that's where a lot of the origin comes from, like, in modern day, because, I mean, you can trace it back to something. Okay. After we learned that Jinkum influenced legislation, I just gave up on all legislative yeah, hope. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the Black Panthers invented Jankum. <laughs> the Black Panthers invented Jankum. So to kind of just put all this to rest, in 2002, the University of Kentucky had a biology professor named James Krupa. I believe that's how I'm saying it. I, I believe that's correct, but that's how I'm saying it. He put matters to test with his students conducting experiments that eventually... Wait, wait, wait. He had students? They were the Krupa Troopas? Yeah, oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Believe it or not, he did not wind that one up. Yeah, so uh, Krupa and his Krupa Troopas <laughs> in 2002 eventually published something in uh, April of 2005 in the, in the uh, edition of the Journal of American Biology Teacher under the title of A Classroom Exercise for Testing Urban Myth. Does wedding rice cause birds to explode or were Ann Landers, Martha Stewart, and Bart Simpson wrong? That's a lot of people you're going to be going against right yeah, there. I mean, that, I mean, it covers a lot of bases. Um, and Ann Landers was one of the advice columnists. He was sitting there saying, you can't give rice to birds because they're going to die from it. Oh, okay. So that's who she is. And everybody knows who Martha Stewart and Bart Simpson is. She's an advice columnist, not a fact columnist. She, she's like Dr. Oz. Um, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> so one thing that Krupa and his students measured was how much rice actually expands in, uh, in soaked water. And what they found is that uncooked rice expands about 33%. But bird seeds, which, as you can guess, birds eat, expand about 40% in water. Huh. So by that logic, we wouldn't have birds because okay. they would die after every meal. See, I remember, I guess it was cruel when my parents, when I was, like during Christmas, I remember we leave out cookies for Santa, milk, and then we leave out bird seed for the reindeer for some reason. Huh. That's not a lot for reindeer. It's bird seed, not reindeer seed. Did y'all have something like that? They didn't tell you that your parents are trying to kill the reindeer. Oh, did you look up reindeer if their stomachs expand <laughs> given bird seed? I didn't look into that, Greg. <laughs> I'm, just gonna, I'm just Googling to see what happens. Well, so I'm, <laughs> while you do that, um, basically Krupa and the Krupa Troopas basically tested all types of rice. The uh, white rice, brown rice, instant rice, everything. <laughs> Oh god! Greg's showing us a lovely picture of. There's some ridiculous comic. Yeah, that, sorry. Yeah, continue. So continue with all different rice. Was it long grain rice, basmati they, rice? They tried all kinds of different rice. And Korean and Japanese sushi rice. I I'm not sure about that. I think they just went with white rice. Okay. Um, for that, but basically, their results still showed that there shouldn't be any ill effects on birds. Now, none of this was ever confirmed. It was just tests to show that it shouldn't affect birds. Until Krupa took matters into his own hands. Uh-oh. He took 60 of his own birds and fed them a diet of rice and water for an entire day to see the effects on them. They showed no effects of, of discomfort, of pain, or distress of any sort. And they lived happily ever after, after that. Okay. So One-time study, but you know. that. But it still shows that it didn't affect them. He was working for Big Rice. They just didn't want you to know. <laughs> um, actually, there was... Uh, there was a, a uh, uh, I can't remember the exact company name, but um, the, the woman, the advice columnist, uh, Ann Landers, she, one of the pissing contests she got into was with like 
the American Rice Association of Houston. And they went back and forth writing between each other. Oh, man. I really wish you could get those letters between them. I ha- I have some snippets of it. It's in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. I doubt it's going to be much less uh, explosive than we expected. Yeah. Well, so basically the bottom line is, is that throwing rice at weddings is more of a danger to people who are walking around to slip and trip on it than it is for the birds or anything like that. She could have just brought that in legislation. Did that bill get passed, by the way? No. It didn't? No. Okay. Not that I'm aware of, no. Thank you. Rocky Horror fans will forever be grateful for that not getting passed. Yeah. Um, it, it, but, like, to me, that, that w- it was really cool because that is something, like we mentioned before, like, that is one of the things about this podcast is that there's so much misinformation out there to the fact that somebody brought it to the United States government to try to make some kind of changes because, you know, that's what they believe to be true. We need to have, like, an alarm go off or something next time, like, they have that happen. It's going to sound something like... Oh, no, 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 that wouldn't sound good. Let's see. It's going to sound like, uh... There we go. If somebody brings law into it. There we go. <laughs> uh, is that everything on that? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's me and my rices. Okay. So, my last topic of the day is going to be whether dogs see in black and white or not. Oh, dogs can't look up. Yeah, they can't look up. Big Al says they can't. Okay. As long as we establish that. <laughs> So everybody's heard this one. Dogs generally just see in black and white, old television style. No, uh, what's it called? What was the TV called when it was in the Chrome, something like that? Like Technochrome. Technicolor. Yeah. Technicolor. What was the uh, the commercial for that uh, popsicle or whatever? And he go, the colors, Duke, the colors. Sorry, I'm colorblind, kid. Remember that? Remember that? I think you made that up. No, yeah, I, didn't, I, oh, I hate you both. Thing. I hate you both so much. I, it's totally true. Um, the kid has the, the it's the multicolored popsicle. Hey. Idea, fact checker. So Greg had a dream about a dog wanting popsicles but not being able to tell the colors. I don't understand. It's probably Rocket Pops for this the record. This is why we don't get anything I'm putting done. this in the show notes. Just This is why the food episode is always my favorite. The Greg was right one. There we go. <laughs> yeah, here it is. <laughs> I got that. So dog seeing in black and white. And the backstory behind this is we're going to have a little bit of science for this one. So most mammalian eyes, which is anything with fur in general, you know, anything from humans to platypuses, which believe it or not are, you know, by some technicality mammals, they just are like glued together abominations. They have something like a cell group called cones in their eyes that are used to differentiate wavelengths of light, which translates as color. So if you see something, it's between, I want to say 400 and 700. That's a little bit... Uh, extra room right there. It's a little bit narrower than that, but that's the color spectrum we can see between about 400 and 650 nanometers. I want to say Roy G. Biv. Yeah, it's actually from uh, infrared to ultraviolet, or backwards depending on which way you're going. Yeah, yeah. So, in reference to that, that's how we are able to translate color is just by the wavelengths of light that hit us. You know, white is a combination of all of them, and then once you cut down some of those wavelengths or filter them out, that's what it becomes. And for most humans, it's these three different cones that are able to predominantly be able to look at either reds, greens, and blues, which in combination can make any other color by the way they're suppressed when light hits them. Right. Now, an interesting part is that a lot of human women have not actually a lot it's As about two three percent alien women no, no 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 this is important because it's only really recorded for human women that they know of oh you, uh, you mean like okay instead of like female mammals as in we're never going to get this we actually get the shit end of the stick so it, as in males human males okay a lot of uh, about two or three percent of the female population of humans has a fourth cone that allows them to see about a million or so more colors oh, wow. sometimes it's debatable whether it's actually active or inactive, 
So some of them can have that fourth cone but not be able to use it, but some of them can be able to use it just by training or by whatever they're interested in, allowing them to be able to use that fourth cone to really differentiate between colors. So that's interesting. So maybe that has something to do with why colorblindness typically runs in men as opposed to women. I was going to get to that. Okay, sorry. No, it's Ooh, all I right. get to shit on something for you for once. No, it's all right. So colorblindness is actually on the X chromosome, which means that so men are XY chromosome and women are XX chromosome. That's generally the way it goes with a few different variations where there can be like, you know, crossing with different genetic defects. So since it's on the X chromosome, it's a recessive chromosome, right? So if you have a man that is colorblind and gives his recessive colorblind chromosome X over to their child and a woman who just gives, uh, actually it'd have to be the woman that gives the rest of the I, I was going to say. And the man that gives the Y. Then that guy is going to be colorblind. Now for most women, the chances of getting two X ne- uh, dot recessives for colorblindness is very, very, very extremely low to the point where there's almost no colorblind women. So like I said, if you're a guy and you get the recessive like colorblindness X, then you're screwed. You're colorblind. Yeah. And the Y can't make up for that. It's not carried on the Y chromosome. So now women, like I said, the dominant will overtake right. the recessive. So what you're saying is basically it's not impossible for a woman to be colorblind, but it's, just it's extremely rare. Yeah. It's like, it's like winning the lottery rare. Yes. Okay. And colorblindness is a little bit confused too. And Josh, you actually have a little bit of reference point for this. Josh isn't colorblind. Somebody else is my twin brother. We, we talked about it. Yeah. 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 So generally, colorblindness comes in a few different forms, and it is usually inactivity in one or more of the cones that the people are looking through. Most of the time, it is a red-green colorblindness. So I think I have it written down here that reds look more brown, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. some things like greens and blues look more purple. It's kind of a crossover. That's how it is with my brother, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you said one time he came up to you with two different socks, and he was like, which one's pink, and neither of them were. Yeah. So, So it's something like that. It can be different variations of severeness but generally it's nothing that ever breaks somebody's capacity to operate in regular everyday life. Yeah, everyday life. And the other thing is that, you know, like we've mentioned before that I want to point out is that very, very rarely today do you have someone who is truly colorblind, all black and white. That that just very rarely doesn't happen these days. And also it's really hard to get that out of them because it's really hard to tell if they actually see like that. Color is a very interesting thing. It's a philosophical question. Like, you know, is my green your green right. or is, you know, your red my red type of deal. Actually, I just listened to something on Radio Lab today about the fact that Homer may have been colorblind because of the way he describes some things. Homer is in the writer or Homer's in Homer Simpson? Which one do you think? I was going to say Homer Simpson, to be no. honest with you. <laughs> Homer, the person that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, he was very descriptive with many of his things, but when he says something like the face of fear was green or honey was green, that means that he may have actually been colorblind. Huh, okay. It, that's a very interesting little tidbit. Yeah, I never really thought about that. That's cool, though. Yeah, I didn't know about that until today. So what a dink. So dogs have only two cones, going back to the whole cones. So they already have that colorblindness that's worked into generally human males and they have more towards the red green color blindness okay and you know they see reds as more you know brown or something like that and you know blues and greens is purplish it just varies depending on it and this is a study done by at the university of washington which was able to suggest how they see it not exactly because it's really hard to get that type of data unless you can have a dog interview you know but generally that hasn't happened yet so airbud yeah however <laughs> Go, I don't want you anymore. 
It'll make me cry. Yeah. So, anyway, but just like most humans, dogs have ways to compensate for this. Even though they cannot for sure differentiate two different colors, they have certain visual cues, like, for instance, one shade of, like, red being darker than, say, yellow. So they're able to, you know, differentiate, like, say, a yellow apple versus a red apple. Okay. So it's nothing actually groundbreakingly bad for them. Or, you know, that really affects their life because, I mean, the whole population's like that and dogs have been surviving just as long as we have, not longer. So it's one of those misconceptions where no, they don't see in black and white. And they also are a little bit better at seeing than most people because they can also see at night. Yeah. They have something in the back of their eyes called tepum, which allows for night vision, which is why when you hit like a dog or a cat with a flash photography at nighttime, instead of seeing like the red eye that we get, you get the green, you get like that yellowish green yeah. light in the back, like headlights. That's the tepum that's reflecting off of post recording note from Ryan. I'm an idiot. It's actually called tapetum. Ah. So that may be the evolutionary benefit. They gave up being able to see as much color as us because they have a tendency to hunt at night and they are much more focused on other wavelengths that are a little bit harder to see in daylight, but easier to see at night. For instance, um, you know, most of the time we see night vision cameras, it's green. Right. That's because it's the easiest thing for us to see as humans. And that might also be correlated to dogs. Well, and the other thing is that, I mean, how important is a dog, you know, is it for a dog to differentiate between different shades of red? I mean, that that's the other thing. I have yet to see an instance where that's uh, important. Exactly. So, I mean, I think they, you know, as far as like they're, you know, it, it's funny because like that, that to me is like how evolution works. They, they give up, you know, something like that that they don't really need. Meanwhile, they're able to see in the dark, you know, as opposed to, you know, us having to wear eye patches because that's what helps us adjust. It's just when they all rolled for their, their D&D game, they, you know, you get some, you win some, you lose some. I think the only animals that rolled all 20s were probably spiders and water bears. Spiders just because like. This is a tangent. I think they rolled all 20s when they were, you know, (laughs) when they were building their species because you should not be able to kill a horse if you can't eat it. Yeah. And they can do that in one bite. Some species of spiders. They they got the size, you know, problem. But at the same rate, they can take out whatever they want to. Snakes, too, debatably. You know, not a whole lot of snakes can eat humans. But the ones that can totally don't. They're not venomous. They're just constrictors. They go hang out on a plane. I don't know. I, it's just nature's unfair, dude. It's just unfair. <laughs> nature's metal, man. We talked about the Gimpy Gimpy plant when we were talking with uh, Blurry Photos, and that's an unfair plant right there. That's true. Look that's it up. True. It's awesome. So, or, or just go listen to that episode of Blurry Photos. Oh, yeah, you could do that one. <laughs> well, there's our, our unintended plug. Yeah, right? Nah, it's not even a plug at this point. It's just being like, <laughs> hey, guys, yeah, we still listen to you. So anyway, that's all for me tonight. Josh, you got anything else you want to add into here? A no, flavor? um... No, not really. I mean, I find it really interesting, though, like uh, how we were just talking about the dogs with the cones and like evolution and stuff like that. I'm really glad to know that I cannot run an alligator. That's um, that's like uh, John Mulaney. The comedian has a quote, you know, when I was younger, I thought quicksand would be a lot bigger deal. Yeah, <laughs> I thought alligators chasing me would be a lot bigger deal, but I'm glad to know I cannot run them now. Down here, it's a slightly bigger deal than most other places. Right, right, right. Slightly. Right. Side note, that was such a good special. Yeah, it was. Um <laughs> I'm new in town. Uh, And the ostriches burying their heads in the sand. Like, it's it's funny how 
You know what? I'm going to call this episode. I'm just going to say the Romans burying their head in the sand. That's what surprised me more. <laughs> yeah, like we need to look more into it, but just on a cursory Google search, that seems to be a real thing. Well, I'll, okay. I'll no, get... no, no, I'm like, I just, it looks real. Well, no, no, no. Like, I'll, I'll take a, a penalty shot here. I, I, it was from, I learned it from Dan Carlin's Punic Nightmares podcast. Um, they said for, peanut nightmares for a second. Punic nightmares. For, for people with the allergy. Um, this episode, Dan Carlin rolls up some peanut redskins and yeah. smokes them. So uh, while, while, <laughs> while, <laughs> while I'm doing this, um, if like that, I, I like, he doesn't really talk about Pliny the Elder, but the the Punic nightmares and the death throes of the Republic are really great back to back. Probably the best like book end from start to finish of like a little section of history podcast I've ever heard. You know, I'm glad you mentioned him. Little guys like him really need some mention with yeah, podcasts yeah, like yeah, us. Yeah. But We're going to give him a leg up. But that's where I... I remember, I, folks, he's not an historian. He's a, he's fan, just of a fan of history. Yeah, uh, but that's where I heard it from. Um, I'm, I'm glad I could teach you something, Ryan. And as far as like the stuff that I covered, I really like, first off, the birds uh, legislation, like that's just batshit crazy. Like... Somebody just, it's just like the Jankum thing, like Greg mentioned, that, you know, somebody heard something that, you know, they saw it on a bulletin board somewhere probably and, and just ran with it. And that makes sense. And just, <laughs> <laughs> but, and, but I think my favorite thing, you know, this episode was the armadillo leprosy because people are like, oh, you're going to catch leprosy from armadillos. It's like, actually, we're the bastards that gave it to him in the first place. And now, you know, the whole reason it exists is because we gave it to them. We need to show them who's boss. Established dominance, my friend. We I'm sent blankets you. to them that had leprosy on them. Oh, hey, we've geez. done stuff like that before, okay? I okay, know. we, I'm not going to say we because I had nothing to do with that. None of us did. And it's a terrible thing, but. That well, shovel. That shovel. Uh, well, <laughs> right now, uh, I think. Um, okay, should we go with the catapult and bodies over the <laughs> castle walls or something like that? Is that okay to talk about those dead people? Yeah, okay. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about now uh, would be is, first off, um, we've had a lot more people reach out to us lately, and, you know, we really enjoy talking to you guys, you know, whether it be on Twitter, um, whether it be Facebook or email or anything like that. We got, got a lot of really good emails in between seasons. Yeah. We Before we do that, we should uh, do our little bonus little bit that we have for everybody. Oh, yeah. I, f I forget about this. Let's do that. So, like we said, Pliny the Elder is a great historian, as in he does not very much filter anything. And... In this research, we look through Pliny's natural history, and we took a few little bits of uh, little excerpts of things about what oh, Pliny God. believed of the time. And we're all going to read at least one today. They're so funny. So here are the wise words of Pliny the Elder. So here's a bit on Pliny's advice on what things are not smitten with lightning. <laughs> of all things which grow out of the earth... Lightning blasteth not the bay tree, nor doth it enter at any time above five feet deep into the ground. And therefore, men fearful of lightning, suppose the deeper caves to be the most safe. Or else booths made of skins of beasts, which they call sea calves, which are also known as seals. For all creatures in the sea, this is alone not subject to the stroke of lightning, like as of all birds, the eagle. So, from that... Seals and eagles are completely immune yeah. to lightning. That's what I got out of it. <laughs> uh, the next is um, what Ryan calls the canonarchy, or a canonarchy, I guess. Canonarchy, so, I think. Yeah. So, upon the border of Africa, inhabit the, yeah, I'm going to try, Ptisimbadi uh, and Potofonse. The people. Yeah, these two groups of people um, with a lot of consonants who have a dog for their king. 
and they judge of his imperial commands by his motion. So there's a dog who makes gestures, and therefore he has now commanded them what to do according to Plenty. Wait, that was in Pirates of the Caribbean. Caribbean. How was how was that in Pirates of the Caribbean? No, the ride or the movie? No, the movie. The, I think it was the second one. Where they had the tribe that was worshiping Jack for a while, and then afterwards, they at the very end, they had the dog that was being worshipped uh, by. Them. Okay, yeah, you're right. Okay, you're right. Yeah, basically, he says there's that's a, history. There's some groups that just there's a dog, and he just makes motions. They're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. That's some good legislative policy right there. What happens when he's licking his balls? <laughs> I was trying to come up with a good one. I got nothing. I, I got nothing. I <laughs> Ask them. So the the last one I'm going to read is called Religious Chickens. The hens of country houses possess some religion. When they have laid an egg, they fall a trembling and shake shake themselves. They turn about also to be purified. And with some springs of a bush, they purify the lustration themselves and their eggs. They fall a trembling. I like the turnabout part. They were like two steps away from the hokey pokey. Yeah, seriously. Pliny's, uh, he's an interesting dude. We might have to like learn from his knowledge as well later. Maybe they'll come back eventually. Who knows? Anyway, so I think that's about everything for tonight. So now we can get into the ways you could reach us. And the first thing we're going to say is YouTube. Yeah, uh, we are asking you guys if you could please do us a solid and go to our YouTube page. We will have a link for it in the show notes. We'll have it on our website. Um, if you really are awesome but can't find it, you can ask us and we will gladly point you in the right direction. We're nearly halfway to having our own name on yeah, YouTube. We just really want our own fucking name on YouTube more than anything. We can't even share the URL because it's it's like 30 letters and characters. But if you go to our homepage, at the bottom, there's links to all different things. YouTube is one of them. Um, we regularly post our YouTube link whenever we put a new episode up. So please, if you get a chance, it's easy in the writing review. It's just you click a button. Yeah. So simple. And we're not going to spam you. We're not going to annoy you. And we make some funny stuff time to time, if I do say so myself. So far on there, we have all the episodes. If you want to check our backlog by some odd means like YouTube. But we also have videos like, for instance, our alcohol episode, which we had a whole supplementary thing for. We have, I think at this point, a pepper video where we all are eating hot peppers like jackasses and trying to figure out what the spells, the spiciness, the best. That was fun for all of us, right? Yeah. I wasn't, it wasn't bad for me. I was fine. Mr. Hiccups. <laughs> Just because I hiccup doesn't mean I, 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 was, uh, I was in pain. Go watch it and judge for yourself, listener. I was in pain. I will not. I'm not afraid to admit You that. both were in pain. Well, he ate a Insane. It doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Yeah. Uh, so we got stuff like that up there. Um, like you said, please just go check it out. Subscribe. Uh, you know, that'd be really awesome. Also, iTunes reviews, as we always say, it's, you know, it's really cool knowing that we have more iTunes reviews than episodes. So we really appreciate you guys helping us out. Thanks, fam. Um, you know, it's it allows us to get more exposure to people and it allows us to, you know, get a bigger audience and you know it just it it, it help helps us helps you you know kind of thing so thank you for that greg you want to tell them how uh they can contact us um it's the uh usual oh, i won't do the npr thing so you can find us rumorfliespodcast.com rumorflies at gmail.com at rumorflies on twitter and instagram rumorflies uh, facebook.com slash rumorflies you can find us on google plus of course our yes favorite. It. our favorite um basically you can find us at google play store stitcher uh basically anywhere podcasts can be found you can just look for rumor flies and um i think that about covers it yeah and we love we love being uh we've been a lot of great interactions on email and twitter lately so please keep them coming we've had some awesome conversations so yeah thank you 
Thank you. And this is Rumor Flies. I'm Ryan. I'm Josh. I'm Greg. Bye. Bye. This episode's closing song is Daybreak by the artist Lit by Fire. Thank you.